I couldn't imagine how far I had fallen, the truth be told. I, I couldn't imagine it was happening to me. I thought this has got to be some kind of a weird dream. But uh, it, it was no dream. That's that's for sure. You know, in one of the jobs in there, too, was was scrubbing um, the, the latrines in, in individual cells. And as I was doing that, you know, rub, scrubbing out a stainless steel toilet, I was sitting there thinking, man, three months ago, I was flying a triple seven captain, eating cheese and fruit on a nice tray. And now I'm, I'm on my knees scrubbing a toilet out so that maybe I can get back and go flying again. You're listening to Flying Straight, an aviator's guide to navigating through a life of sobriety. People in the flying industry and other walks of life will share their experiences of living a life free of alcohol and other drugs. You will also hear from experts in the world of addiction and self-improvement. Join Andrew O'Mealy, airline pilot and non-practicing alcoholic, as he takes you on a journey discovering how a sober life can lead to a deeper level of happiness. Hi everyone, my guest today is retired airline captain Tony Dreiser, talking to us all the way from West Olive, Michigan in the United States. Tony grew up in Muskegon, I hope I've pronounced that right. It's 25 miles or so down the road from where he is right now. And other than a stint in New England, he's always called Michigan home. Throughout his amazing career, Tony flew some pretty nice aeroplanes, including a range of Boeings, the 707, the 727, the 757 and the 767. He also operated the DC-10 and the MD-80. Before getting into airlines, he flew a whole lot of light aircraft as well. He completed his career in command of a Boeing 777, big wide body, operating between Tokyo and Dallas-Fort Worth. It was a classically beautiful ending to his career. So as he taxied in towards the terminal, if you can just imagine on either side of the taxiway, the fire trucks shooting their water cannons in the air and forming an arch for Tony to manoeuvre past. This is a tradition in aviation to salute, farewell and thank retiring airline captains for a job well done. So it is a big deal and it's something that is earned. When he got off the aircraft, his family were waiting for him to celebrate a perfect end to a perfect career, you might think. Well, the perfect end part, that's pretty accurate. But as Tony will tell you shortly, the journey was far from perfect. He didn't just start with a company and fly for a few years, then walk away. There were a few interesting events along the way. His career path was not one you'd probably expect from such an experienced pilot. You see, Tony had a problem with alcohol. So much so that when he drank, he would break out in handcuffs, a direct quote from him. Okay, welcome, Tony. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here. Yeah, good to see you. So how's life in uh, Michigan? Sunny Michigan? Sunny. Today was sunny. It was just cold. Uh, It's very cold uh, right now, but not cold enough for ice on the lakes. Um, just about good weather for, we've got a little snow on the ground, good weather for riding a fat tire bicycle through the woods, um, dealing with the COVID stuff, pretty much like everybody around the world is. And our governor is starting to relax things a little bit. Uh, we haven't been able to eat in restaurants forever and starting in another 10 days, we're actually going to be able to do limited, um, dining inside in, in restaurants with some restrictions, but we're, we're moving in the right direction. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really good thing. So uh, Michigan all your life and uh, you got an interest in aviation as a, a young guy. Yeah, I really did. We I lived pretty close under the flight path for Muskegon County Airport. So pretty much from the time I can remember wandering around outside, um, you know, I'd see aircraft, you know, flying overhead and my dad would occasionally take us out to the airport We'd watch watch airplanes take off and land. And then when I was about 13 years old, I got my first uh, plane ride with a friend of mine who had just got his private pilot license. And I'll tell you what, that was just pure magic. It, there was nothing like it. I could not 
imagine how cool that was to to see the earth from that perspective you know just watching that shadow of the aircraft get tiny as we as we took off pure magic and i knew right then right there that uh, that was going to be the career for me for sure all right, great. So first solo, how old were you when you when you flew um, an airplane I, on your own? I soloed uh, when I was 16. I didn't have a driver's license yet. I rode my bicycle to the airport to actually uh, do my first solo. So I, I, I soloed early, as early as I could, 16 in the States. Um, got my private license when I was 17. And then I think they felt sorry for me because I was spending so much money on flying lessons. They actually hired me to pump gas at the airport. I started pumping gas and washing airplanes and, you know, whatever they needed doing, uh, I did that. And then by the time I was 18 and graduated from high school, I had my commercial, my uh, all of my ground instructor ratings, uh, instrument instructor, and uh, uh, basic CFI as well. So had pretty much everything except the ATP by the time I got out of high school. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. And then uh, high school, what happened then? Well, after high school, I went. I spent a couple of years in uh, community college, uh, and I was still. I was at that time. They I, I graduated from pumping gas to actually flight instructing and flying some single engine charter. I didn't have a multi engine rating yet, so I flew some single engine charters. Um, then I continued college in Lansing, Michigan. Went to Michigan State University. Picked up my multi engine and ATP when I was there, and then started flying multi engine charters, um, Beach 18s. Um, Baron Cessna 310s, that sort of stuff. And I was working there when I got hired by American Airlines when I was 24. Wow. Okay. So uh, flying has definitely been in your blood for the vast majority of your life. And uh, one would think that that would uh, create a pretty sort of stable and motivating type life. But that isn't exactly the case. (laughs) Um, How about you wind the clock back? a few years and if you can just paint a picture of uh, how your life was uh, back a number of years ago. Well, you know, I really thought it was, it was going along pretty well. Um, You know, I I got married when I was pretty young, had, uh, had children from my first wife. I was actually married three times over the the course of my life so far, but three great kids from my first life, wife, (laughs) first life's wife. Um, And, you know, I thought things were going along okay. Um, I, I thought I drank pretty normally at that point, but relationships for me were never as easy as, as flying an aircraft. That seemed to come naturally. Um, anything to do with relationships with, with spouses, that, that was kind of tough. Um, and, you know, the tougher the relationship got, I think the more I tried to solve it by, you know, maybe having another drink. You know, I seemed like that kind of took all of the sting out of things made, I thought it made everything great. And, and in fact, it, it's um, even early on, as, as early as maybe 30 years ago, I could kind of tell that that was my coping mechanism when a relationship, uh, especially with my partner, was starting to go sideways, that I would usually, uh, you know, turn towards alcohol to try and solve it. And it just progressively got worse. Um, I refused to accept it. Every single wife that I was married to, all three of them, they said, you have a problem with alcohol. And and each marriage progressively got shorter in duration. Um, My last marriage um, didn't even last five years. Um, It probably never should have happened to start with, but that's another story probably for another time. But alcohol definitely played a huge problem in, in all of those relationships as things started to go sideways. Okay, and uh, I remember once you were talking about that new wife smell, so uh, possessions and so on were things that you chased and new experiences. That's exactly it. Um, I always looked to just try and acquire what I thought I didn't have. If I was having a problem with a certain wife, I thought, well, I'm either going to maybe go have an affair and, and get what I was lacking in my relationship and that everything would be perfect. And, of course, that never turned out to be the case. Um, I, I, I literally kept thinking that if I could just get this new wife or get this new car or get this better sailboat or a new camera, you name it, um, any of those things I thought that was going to actually take me over the happiness hump, um, I would get it and I would say, now what? Because I don't feel any happier than I did before. Yeah, right. 
that resonates with me and especially at the moment with uh, the whole COVID thing and uh, being stood down from work and I've always thought that I needed things, material possessions around me to, to make me happy and the, the weird thing has been the less things I have, the happier I seem to be, which I'm still trying to work all that out. But, yeah, anyway, so other than the relationship issues and so on, things seem to be trucking along okay, pretty, as you probably thought, typical for an airline captain and had a good wage coming in. And on the afternoon of November the 19th, 19, uh, 2016, you told me uh, how you decided to go and visit a buddy just to have a couple of bourbons. Uh, that was a hell of a session. Can you tell us a bit about that day? Yeah, well, it actually started a little bit before I decided to go to my buddy's house. Um, I was already separated, so I was living at home. Um, feeling particularly rotten about life in general, so I started drinking bourbon pretty early in the morning. And it was uh, a Saturday, so there was a lot of college football games on. And that was my plan. I was just going to sit around, watch college football all day, drink. You know, I, I didn't have to fly. I think my next trip was maybe four or five days in advance. Didn't, wasn't too worried about anything. So I was pretty well hammered when I, when I decided uh, that it would be a great idea to just drive over to my buddy's house, just five miles straight down the street. No turns, no anything. I just had to make one turn out of my driveway, one other turn into his driveway. So it's not like it was very complicated. And I definitely remember getting down to his house and we sat in, in out in his barn and had a couple of couple of more bourbons. And he had some really good bourbon that tasted better than what I had been drinking all day. So we're just sitting there smiling and, and everything was good. And I, and I remember it was right about sunset. I left his house and I made the turn to go to my house. And the next thing I remember, two hours later, was just a very violent impact of a head-on automobile crash. Um, so for two hours, I was apparently driving around. I have no recollection where I was um, or what I had been doing. Um, I still had my clothes on, so I guess it was it was okay, but really no recollection. Um, I never saw the car that I hit coming at me. Um, I never saw or heard the sirens, uh, the police vehicles, ambulances, stuff like that coming afterwards. Um, I just remember the violent impact and getting out of the truck. And when they found me, I was just laying on the ground outside the truck. Um, my next memories of that were just waking up in the hospital with a chest full of broken ribs, broken breastbones, broken fingers, and some lacerations. And it was at that point I thought, well, this is not good. You're lucky to be alive by the sounds of it. Uh, I truly, I truly was. Um, the impact, I was going about 55 and he was doing about 40. So it's the same kind of a thing as hitting a tree at about 90 miles an hour. Both, both vehicles were totaled. They had to cut him out of his truck. I'm just very grateful that uh, he actually was driving a, a full-size vehicle, and, and I was too. Um, the airbags deployed. We were both kind of skinned up in the face from the airbags, but at least we didn't have any other damage that way. So we're both very fortunate. But uh, he had some more serious injuries than I did. He broke an ankle and had to have five or six different surgeries to try and put his leg back together. Oh, God. Yeah. So um, what did you think? Lucky escape and uh, I'll continue, have a few weeks off flying and then back to work again? Or what were you thinking then? No, I, I, it was an, almost an instant realization that what I had been doing um, finally caught up with me. I, 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 for about a couple of years, I was thinking I was just barely staying ahead of the wreckage behind me. I knew my drinking was getting worse. Um, I was having some some health issues. I, you know, would just all of a sudden start to cough uncontrollably. Um, I didn't miss any work. I was sort of a binge drinker. I would, you know, drink at home in between trips and rarely if ever drank anything on a layover. Um, I just never wanted to have any, I had seen too many guys get, you know, arrested at the airport um, in some foreign country. And I said, I'm never going to do that. But when I got home, it was a different, uh, a different story. So I actually came to the realization quite quickly. I was only in the hospital for two days, came back home. And the first phone call that I made was um, to the, my pilots union, uh, Allied Pilots Association. 
uh, it was to the hymns uh, chair. And I had, I remember writing that phone number down several years back at recurrent training. Um, so I dug that out and gave him a call and literally I was shaking so badly on the phone. I'm not sure he even understood what I was saying, but I think he had heard that same kind of a cry for help many times before. Right. Okay. Just winding back a little bit there, you were saying uh, you're a binge drinker. Um, you didn't go out much on slips, on trips away. So I guess from the outside, the pilot community that you were you were in would have not perceived you as a the typical image of that alcoholic drunk that a lot of people do have in their mind. They would have just seen you as Tony Dreiser, the triple seven captain. I think that's a pretty fair statement. And I, I think I became over the years I became pretty proficient at at putting the image forth that I wanted other people to see. Um, and it didn't matter what type of group I was with. If I was with some buddies who were drinking, I could be that drunken guy. Um, if I was with, you know, with the airline stuff, I completely shut that off. And I was Mr. Professional Captain. Um, like I said, rarely um, even drank even a beer or something on a layover. And so I, I, I disguised that pretty well when it came to work. But I felt at home, I didn't have to disguise it. In fact, I got to the point, uh, certainly in my last marriage, where I had no intention of disguising it. And, you know, we'd get in, I'd get into an argument with my ex-wife, and rather than try and sort it out that way, I just would get belligerent and, you know, have another scotch or another bourbon or a beer or a wine or whatever I happen to have. Um, but, yeah, the image that I projected to, to everybody else um, – Nobody really had any idea that I was an alcoholic. So there's uh, Captain Tony Dreiser lying in hospital. You're making a few phone calls and uh, you mentioned, so you, you rang up the hymns chair. So just uh, for those that didn't listen to the previous podcast, I briefly explained hymns. It's a supportive organisation, not-for-profit, that's in around the world but started off in the U.S., and it gets uh, pilots back in the air again from pilots who have been there, pilots such as Tony Hill. We'll probably talk about that soon. So you made a phone call to the hymns chair and Mike Galanti that you spoke with. Yeah, Mike Mike was actually the, he was the hymns chair. And, and I, so I spoke with him, you know, told him what was going on. And he reassured me that, number one, I wasn't the first person to have this happen to, which was a great relief to me. And he said, you know, I don't know if we can get you back in time before you have to retire, because at the time I was 63 years old and mandatory retirement age is 65. So he wasn't sure that I would ever get back to work just from the logistical standpoint of it takes you know, anywhere between eight to 10 months, typically to go through this program and get your special issuance medical back. And so the, he was a little uncertain of how that was going to look like. Um, but he says, hey, we'll get you in there as soon as you're well enough to travel. And it took actually two weeks before I was well enough to travel. I did a 30-day inpatient um, stint at a rehab center in California. Um, which was the first part of the hymns requirement that you you do one of those first. But even before I could do that, because of the offense that I committed um, in the state that I live, it's a felony. And I had to get the permission from a, a circuit court judge to even leave the state, because once you've committed a felony, they didn't want me to leave the state. So I was granted permission to travel to the rehab center and, and at least get that part of it out of the way and come back to Michigan. Right, okay. So uh, Mike really guided you through a lot of the, the process and uh, was there any talk of, hey, maybe you're not going to uh, be a free man in the, the near future or, or was that always, was that already something that was really high on in your thought processes? It, it was very high in my thought process because when I got out of the hospital, and I, you know, and I read the traffic citation um, and what I was being charged with, and it was a felony. And I looked it up, and my jaw just about hit the floor because it said this is punishable by up to five years in prison and a ten thousand dollar fine. And I thought, wow. I mean, I knew I had done something 
um, seriously wrong. I didn't quite kill this individual, but I came pretty close to killing him and myself. And the state took it very seriously. So I knew that this felony charge was going to happen. Um, I knew it was something that I did not want to fight. I knew what I had done. And, and from that standpoint, I just wanted to, to lean into it, um, you know, to start the path back, whatever that looked like, whatever it was going to take to get my life back on track, I was willing to do it. Um, I just wanted the opportunity to do it. And thankfully, the, the circuit judge um, let me leave the state to start that. But I was very aware that when I got finished up with rehab, that I was going to probably be going to jail or prison for some amount of time. I just didn't know at that time for how long. So court case happened, and uh, you tell us a little bit about uh, how that all went. Well, again, it was the first time for me ever being in, in court like that, and I had been conversing with my attorney, and, and he was saying that um, he thought probably I would get 30 days in jail, um, that the, the judge would, would see that. Um, that was the sentence that was recommended, and and I thought, okay, thirty days, I can I can kind of handle that, and so you know I'm dressed up in all of my fine clothes, looking presentable to the judge and answering the question, and and when he told me to to rise for the sentencing, he sentenced me to six months in jail, and the first thing I thought was. I mean, wow, I, I had no idea that that was was coming um, based on the court recommendation. Um, I really wasn't prepared for that. But when they said six or six months in jail um, and I thought the first thing I thought of was, well, that's the end of the airline career because I was already on a pretty tight time um, table as it was just because of my age. And I thought, well, that's the nail in the coffin right there. I'm never going to get back to fly again. Um, which was, it was just absolutely crushing because of all the work that I had put in to my recovery program to that point. I had already been through the inpatient treatment. I had already done the intensive outpatient treatment. I did the 90 AA meetings in 90 days and was just bicycling back and forth to all of these events to make it happen. And then to go into jail where they they only had one AA meeting per week. And it was it was sort of a joke. I think the only time that people actually went to this meeting was to get out of their cell just for an hour. They didn't really because they would go back into <laughs> after the meeting, they would go back and say, well, bullshit. When I get out of here, I'm going to I'm going to go drink again. And, and I knew I was not going to. Um, but it was. It was very disheartening to have to spend that time in there. And I, I had asked the judge if I could, you know, get out of jail periodically to attend some of the required meetings for hymns. And he flat refused um, to let me out until my sentence was completely served. Wow, what a what an experience. So once that sentencing, uh, the six months, you heard that you were in for six months, I'm not. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the system in the US. But do you get to go home and get your toothbrush and change of undies, or, or what happens there? Um, no, no, and no. Um, right straight from the sentencing, there's a door from the courtroom, and I was led through that door. They took my tie away from me. Um, anything that that they thought I could hurt myself with, they took away from me. Um, immediately put me in handcuffs in a waist chain and leg chains and handcuffs. Um, and then I sat downstairs for about two hours just on a concrete slab with a bunch of other people that were now being transported to jail. And so sat there for a couple of hours and was transported to jail and then sat in jail on a different piece of concrete slab. Um, they actually took the handcuffs off for a little while. Um, while we were in that uh, other holding cell. But we sat in there on the concrete again for about 12, almost 12 hours before, it was almost midnight um, before they actually took me to, to my cell block where I was going to spend the next, uh, as, as it turns out, four months. Yeah, right. So, again, so no from, toothpaste, no, no anything. Oh, my God. So you've gone from you know, wide-bodied captain Tony Dreiser to being handcuffed and sitting on a concrete slab. What a what yeah. a feeling, eh? It was 
I couldn't imagine how far I had fallen, the truth be told. I, I couldn't imagine it was happening to me. I thought this has got to be some kind of a weird dream. But uh, it, it was no dream, that's that's for sure. But, um, you know, at that point, I, I remember listening to, I was fortunate enough to have heard Lyle Prouse's story, um, where he had actually went to, to prison as well for a year and a half um, for what he had done. And just knowing that he had been through a similar situation um, and, and made it through gave me a lot of hope. And in fact, in the, in the big book, one of the stories in there is his story. It's just called Grounded near the back of the big book. And I think that was the first uh, story that I actually read in the um, AA big book. And reading through that thing, it, at least there was some hope that, okay, I'm not the first person that this happened to either. And he ended up getting back. So maybe there's you know a chance that I'll get back as well. Right. So Lyle was the first US pilot to be jailed for drinking flying. He was in prison for quite some time. But it was what what sort of advice was Lyle giving you when you when you went in there? Um well I didn't speak to him directly. I heard him speak at a hymn seminar. And so it was just mostly his words. And I think the, the thing that motivated me the most was um, his total acceptance of what he had done and the fact that he didn't want to delay going to jail. He just wanted to get on with it um, and, and get this over with. And that was the same sort of an attitude that, um, that I wanted to take as well. I didn't want to fight this. I didn't want to appeal it. Um, I, I sort of felt I was lucky in, in some regards because I could have been sentenced to up to five years in prison. And even though six months was more than what I thought I was going to get, it was still a lot better than what I might have, have received. So what Lyle gave me, I think, was just some inspiration and some motivation that, okay, this isn't the end of the world. It's, it's going to be a tough path back. But the way to, to, to get through this is to just really dig into it, lean into it and get all the help that I could along the way. That's great. So it sounds like you had a lot of support there to get through. Um, the likes of Lyle and Mike Galanti, who we mentioned, and probably family and a whole range of other people, um, which is fantastic. Now, so when you got in there and you had all this support, uh, obviously you didn't just sit back thinking, well, this is wonderful. I'll just draw upon this support and uh, wait till my time finishes. There would have been a lot of sort of un unsavory sort of tasks that you would have had to perform while you're in prison. Um, there truly were. And, and actually, as unsavory as they were, they had a program. It was called a sentence work abatement program, where if I worked outside of the jail every day, um, for every four days that I worked, they reduced my sentence by one day. So during the, the Monday to Friday part of the, of the prison deal, I would be outside. I was doing landscaping work. Uh, you name it, we did it. Whatever the, the towns needed, um, they just needed some manual labor, uh, moving things around. And, and the funny thing was, I mean, I was far and away the oldest guy in this swap um, deal. I was 64 years old. Most of these people in there were kids. I mean, they were in their 20s. And and I think I, I outworked most of them. I, I was motivated. Once I found out I could reduce my jail time, um, I was I was I worked pretty hard. But, you know, in one of the jobs in there, too, was was scrubbing um, the, the latrines in, in individual cells. And as I was doing that, you know, rub, scrubbing out a stainless steel toilet, I was sitting there thinking, man, three months ago, I was flying a triple seven captain, eating cheese and fruit on a ice tray. And now I'm, I'm on my knees scrubbing a toilet out so that maybe I can get back and go flying again. So you, you got out and uh, obviously uh, flying, as we said, was, was in your veins, was in your blood. So... I guess most people probably would have thought, well, I'm only got a, a short period of time till retirement. I might as well just hang out till then and uh, not fly and then disappear somewhere. How did you approach all that when you got out? When I got out of jail, I was able to 
really get back into the HIMSS program hard. I still had a couple of major obstacles to get through. I still had to do the psychiatric evaluation, and then I had to do a cognitive um, brain screen test. Um, so I had to go down to South Carolina to take both of those. Uh, did pretty well on that, and all of the paperwork was finally in order. They put that off to the FAA, I believe, in October of 2017. And once the FAA gets the paperwork, it can sometimes take two, three, four, five months, whatever. The FAA up here works very slowly. Um, so I had no idea how quickly they'd be able to, to look at my file and make a determination one way or the other if I get my special issuance medical. So once they submitted it, I was kind of on pins and needles. I was still on long-term disability at American, which I'm very grateful for because financially I didn't have any hardships. I was still getting a paycheck. Um, even though I was now divorced, um, I, you know, so I was living at home. I was still doing AA meetings. I was still doing aftercare, um, but I was just waiting to hear from the FAA. And when I finally heard from the FAA, it was in January of 2018. That was only three months before my 65th birthday. Um, I called American Airlines and told them I, I had my special issuance. They put me on the payroll that very same day. And they, they gave me a couple of choices. And I didn't really realize that I was even going to have a choice. Um, and I realize now that Mike Galante from Allied Pilots Association had, had spoken with the, our vice president of flight at American Airlines. Um, and interestingly enough, I had flown with him when he was just a, a, a 727 first officer. So, you know, we knew each other, and when Mike mentioned the situation, um, I know that he, he pulled a few strings, and he said, they gave me an option. They said, well, you can stay at home. We'll just pay you until you, your retirement day, or if, you wanted, or if you want to try and get back and fly, you're going to have to do a complete recall on the 777, do all of the back training that you've missed in the last year and a half, and, and we'll get you back, and, and we'll make it happen. And I said, I want to go fly the 777 again. And so about two weeks later, um, they got me, they, they patched together a, a requalification training thing because all of the training slots had already been awarded um, for that particular time period. So they handcrafted a, a program just for me. I was the only one in it, you know, usually you go through with another co-pilot, but they used uh, ground school instructors. They used sim pilots for my FO on the triple seven um, to get me back through that. And then I took the, the check ride, which I passed um, and was able to get back and fly that one last retirement trip just four days before I, my um, 65th birthday. That's amazing. You know, the, the, the cost of, of training just for that one flight, I'm, I'd hate to think what it would even be. You know, the, the resources with the, the manpower, the simulators, the administration, and on and on and on and on. I mean, normally the, the investment from the airline Airlines are a business that usually expect a pretty good return on their investment. And obviously, American Airlines were getting nothing out of this other than the fact that they were really looking after you. And, and that just goes to really show what a, what a great organisation they are and, and, and hymns as well to getting you to that point. Exactly. And the, it wasn't lost on me that, American was going to get nothing from this other than the uh, it's it's even it's even hard for me to put into words but I think with American and I would like to think with other companies but I know this for sure with American they really care about the individual um, they weren't just paying lip service to it and for them to put that kind of uh, investment into me, um, the simulator time, I don't have any idea what the whole program costs, but I'm not sure simulator time on a 777 is definitely not cheap. Um, and then they had to buy some other captain off of the trip that I actually flew um, to make that happen and put a Czech airman on the trip as well. So it was it was very costly for them um, to do it. And it, it just, it sh the other thing it pointed out to me too, though, was that um, there is a certain reward, as they say in the in the AA 12-step 
thing, that the promises do come true if you work for them. And I think part of the, the reason that they were happy to maybe go a little bit of an extra mile was I really put a lot of effort into trying, you know, just to be a different human being from, from the one that I was before I went into the HIMSS program. I think they recognize that. And, and that's the other reason I think in the long term that the union and the airline actually asked me to stay on in the HIMSS program and volunteer as a, as a, a peer monitor. Um, and I'm still doing that three years after I retired. Yeah, good on you. That's, uh, as you say, it's not just lip service from the airline. It's, um, it shows a really deep engagement with everyone, but it's, it's a real honesty about the airline as well. And uh, that's the perception I get about it. But that, air, that uh, effort that you're talking about, you know, someone once explained to me or gave me their take on, on effort and believing in, you know, something bigger than yourself guiding you was uh, it's like we're in a boat and the effort, we're just at the oars and we're, we're rowing as hard as we can and that whatever it is is the rudder. So as long as we, we row really hard in that boat that uh, that higher power or whatever you believe it is will be uh, guiding you to where you want to get to. Fantastic. So it was only a, only a few days until your retirement date that that, that last flight took place. You landed at uh, Tokyo and uh, what happened then? Well, Tokyo was pretty easy and it was a really short layover. Um, the, the layover hotel is, is pretty close to the airport. Um, I had been flying there for years, so everybody knew it was my retirement trip. They had a nice little party for me at the hotel, and usually they would break out bottles of wine and champagne and, and everything else, and I said, no, you other guys can have that, and so they had some nice sparkling Perrier uh, for me. Um, you know, but again, it was a short layover and, you know, we flew back to Dallas and they obviously had the, uh, the water cannon salute all set up. So you, uh, you were taxing in, uh, did you expect that? Did you know that was coming? We knew it was going to happen. Americans said that they were going to do it. And my concern was the day that I, my, on my retirement trip, um, the temperature was below freezing in Dallas. Um, it was maybe minus two Celsius or something like that. Um, clear skies, beautiful day, but it was very cold. And I was thinking, I don't know if they're going to shoot water cannons, you know, through the inlets of these big triple <laughs> seven engines, you know, and, and flood these engines up. You know, we're trying to figure out, should we turn on the engine anti-ice here or, or what's going on here? Taxiing in. But uh, they did the water cannon salute right at the gate. Um, all we had to do is just line up on the, on the lead-in line, and there was a fire truck on either side, and they shot the, the water cannon over the top of the fuselage. And flight attendants took a lot of pictures from the inside, and my two daughters were up on the roof of the airport at the Hyatt Regency filming it from up there. So I got some great video and some great pictures from both inside and outside. Oh, that's unreal. That's really good. Lucky you did it at... Uh when you finally got to the gate and not taxiing in, imagine if the <laughs> if the engines flamed out and you never got to the other end. But that would have been a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> oh, that's excellent, mate. Really good. So you <laughs> you get home and then that's the the end of the career. Uh, how's how's life now? As far as uh, you were saying, you you're kayaking and riding your bike around. But uh, tell us a bit about your your uh, building of your kayak. Well, the kayak was was great. In fact, even after flying, I knew that I had to do something to replace all the time that I had spent drinking at home um, because I had a lot of hobbies and I just quit doing them when I was drinking. I'd have a few drinks in the morning and I would quit. Um, I, I would just not do any projects. So with the years that I had in sobriety, um, after I retired, I thought, well, I got to do something now. What do you want to do? And I thought, well, I've got this beautiful wood shop and it's winter. I always wanted to, to build a kayak. And so I found a company that uh, sold kits. Everything was pre-cut. And so I ordered one of these. It showed up at the house. And I, as I started unpacking it, I thought, man, I don't know if I could put this thing together. Um, it looked like it's going to take some time. But the, the beauty, I, I think, of sobriety and, and of good recovery is you just look at these things a lot differently. You know, you look at it as an opportunity to, 
to do something. And so I had plenty of time. I needed to fill that time up with, um, I like to think of it as just being a distraction. Um, Literally the best part of my days in recovery are, I don't focus on not drinking because to me that, that means that always I'm thinking about a drink and then just saying to myself, well, I'm not going to drink. Okay. So think about something else. And so that's, that's kind of what got me into the kayaking um, deal. I knew it was going to take a lot of hours to put this thing together. And it was a great project. Took me just about all winter um, of 2019 to complete that kayak. And I could not hardly wait until winter was over and I could put the thing in the water and actually go and paddle it. Yeah, mate, I've seen, you've sent me pictures of it and uh, the actual construction of it, which is pretty intricate. And then the the finished product, which is really, it is a work of art. You know, it's this beautiful, uh, what would it be about, uh, I'm just trying to think in feet here, but 14 foot thereabouts. It's 17, 17 and a half feet long. Oh wow! Okay, seventeen. Yeah, it's 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 serious and it's it's varnished and the the curves on it and everything. It's really really it is beautiful. And I guess you probably got to the end of it and thought, oh, I don't want to use this to you know I don't want to scratch it. <laughs> it looks like something you'd hang up on a you know from the ceiling of a of a fancy hotel or something. It's just absolutely beautiful. And then you've sent some photos of of actually using it and some great adventures with it. Yeah, I have. I've done some kayak camping with it. I took it up to Lake Superior, um, and it was just a really short trip. But usually Lake Superior is, is ordinarily it's too rough to do a lot of paddling on. But the day that I went up there, it was beautiful weather, um, sunny skies, no waves. And it was maybe a, an eight-mile paddle from where I put in to where the campground is, where I spent the night. And it was just wonderful to, to be out there, you know, and, and here I am, you know, 67 years old, hauling this kayak through the woods with all my camping gear and, and going for a nice paddle and no thought of drinking, no, no alcohol anywhere. And, and I just had the best time of my life, you know, doing it. I, I tried to get somebody to go with me, but I couldn't find anybody on short notice to do it. So I, I just did it solo. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. What a, what a mind clearing experience it was beautiful just gorgeous that's the kind of feeling that i have pretty much every day you know i'm doing something either i've gone for a hike and i do a fair amount of backpacking or or riding this fat tire bike around on the trails here and that's sort of that same feeling that at the end of the day um i've gotten through it clear-headed i've stayed busy i have you know pretty active routines where you know between uh going to online AA meetings because of COVID right now um, and then staying busy throughout the rest of the day. It, the beauty of it to me anyway, um, and I'm really grateful for it, there just is rarely ever a thought of, of bringing alcohol back into my life. I remember it was one of the Aussie birds meetings, I think, that um, I heard this and this is this is huge. It says, you know, sobriety gave me everything that alcohol promised. And I and, and that is so true that, uh, you know, this sober lifestyle is, is really has uh, taught me that that's what it's all about. I don't have to go chasing all this other stuff thinking it's going to make me happy. Um, I, it just naturally kind of follows me around these days. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. I, I agree. Uh, the, the level of happiness I find through a sober life, it's, such a deeper level of happiness because it's not an artificial uh, type of happiness. We don't pay, you know, financially to get that happiness. We're not going to a bottle shop, a liquor store and uh, paying money and then drinking and expecting, sitting back and expecting to be happy or, you know, it's also like going to the movies. You pay for a ticket and so you expect to be happy or go on a, a cruise when you could do that sort of thing and pay the money and sit back and say, well, now make me happy. Things that take effort like building your kayak and, you know, living a sober life, it takes a lot of effort and the, the depth of happiness is is just, the reward is just second to none. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. But, yeah, now you're talking about the Aussie birds of a feather. So birds of a feather is a, it's, it's an AA group 
for air crew. Uh, so we have a Australian birds of a feather. It's on Zoom at the moment and Tony zooms in and uh, shares his words of wisdom with us. And uh, I remember the other day at a birds meeting uh, you were talking about, because you, you have brought it up a couple of times during this conversation about uh, not focusing on drinking. Uh, if you, And then you gave an analogy of riding a motorbike. Can you just relay that for us? Well, yeah. I mean, to me, a lot of it is is about what I focus on. And I, I've, I've observed with a lot of just the AA meetings that I've gone to, so many people are, are, are 100% focused on just not drinking. Um, and they really haven't made too many life changes. They're just trying to get through this thing with nothing but sheer willpower and saying to themselves, for today, I'm not going to drink. But they really haven't changed anything. And to me, I needed to put the focus on something else. I remember one of the counselors when I was in rehab, they said, rather than spending an inordinate amount of, of time and energy to fix something that's broken, try and create something that's new. Um, because eventually you're going to get tired of trying to fix that broken thing. It's, it's broken beyond the point of being repaired. So I put my focus just like I do with my motorcycle. I've got a, a beautiful Indian motorcycle that now the state of Michigan says I can legally ride again. So I'm looking forward to summer. But the, um, the, I think with the analogy that you were looking for there is when I was taking a motorcycle riding course, they said, the motorcycle is going to go where your head and your eyes are looking. So if you see an obstacle in the road, stop looking at the obstacle. Stop looking at what you want to avoid. Look where you want the bike to go. And the bike will go that way. And I've found that that's pretty true with the um, with my focus on, on alcohol as well. I'm focusing on either building a kayak or maybe getting out a guitar and playing it or, or trying to capture some great um, shots with a camera. Anything to put my focus someplace else because that's where my mind goes. And, and alcoholism is, is pretty much a disease of the mind anyway. And what we do in between the ears, I think, has a lot to do with, with how successful the recovery is going to be. So I put my focus on other things, um, not so much on just don't not picking up the bottle in any given day. Yeah, no, that, that was the analogy I was looking for. It's, it's fantastic. I I relay that to people all the time, and it's pretty much whatever you whatever you focus on, you're going to hit <laughs> on a motorbike, and uh, that's. I, I feel that uh, you know uh, it's not so much suppressing the, the cravings and so on; it's just changing the changing the track and thinking about something else without suppressing. It's really important, I find. So, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's a. An amazing story, Tony. You, you, you were the, the significant inspiration in getting this whole project up and running because we were when, when we were over in uh, Denver uh, less than two years ago, I went to my first Birds of a Feather meeting. I had a, there was a hymns convention over there and so I walked in. There was uh, the hymns convention had uh, probably a couple of hundred uh, recovering alcoholic and substance use disordered um, pilots there. And uh, it was just an amazing to for us all to get together. But anyway, walking into that birds of a feather meeting and I hear this guy start telling his story and, and that was you. And I just thought straight away, this, this story needs to really get out there and other stories. I mean, there's so many different stories out there that uh, they're interesting um, They and they can actually influence people's futures, I believe. So I really think that'll happen. Uh, so uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, share your life experience with us today. Uh, you're a great inspiration for many pilots uh, here in this part of the world, in Australia, all over the world. You know, In Australia, we sincerely hope that uh, you can come over one day and visit us, or you know, some of us will probably end up coming over to do some kayaking with you in that beautiful area. Well, yeah, and I, I would just like to to say to you, I mean, I remember well that meeting that uh, when we first met in Denver, 
And, and, you know, there was, there was a powerful connection that we sort of formed right off the bat. Um, I was, I was really impressed that number one, that you had come all the way from Australia to Denver um, to start gathering this information. I was even more impressed when I saw you the following spring down in Atlanta at the advanced hymn seminar. And I, I said to myself, I mean, this is a, this is a man who really wants to, to, to take what we have here in the States and bring it back down under and, and get a program going because the disease really doesn't care what, what hemisphere we're in, whether we're North or South of the equator, it's the same thing. And, and pilots around the world are, are pretty much the same. We love what we're doing. We want to get back in the cockpit and what you're doing um, through this podcast and, and, you know, your involvement in putting these birds meetings together. Um, it's, I'll tell you what, it's just, it's a powerful motivation for me to keep doing what I'm doing as well. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, mate. I think it's that, uh, that buzzword synergy too, you know, we all get together and the, and, and what we get out of it is greater than the, the sum of its parts. And, um, the guys like you are just so inspiring and you know, look forward to doing this again pretty soon. And I'm sure we will. Well, I hope you get I hope you can come to the States and we'll go kayaking. And, and as soon as this COVID thing is over, I'm going to get an Australian visa and, and come down under and we'll go do something fun. Oh, we will. We'll, we'll kayak through the wet Sundays. How does that sound? I love it. <laughs> yeah, really good. All right, mate. Thanks. You're welcome, Andrew. I hope you enjoyed Tony's story and maybe got something out of it. He regularly gives valuable insights into how to live a happy, fulfilled and sober life. To me... Tony's story is a classic example of it could happen to anyone if alcohol is a significant factor. If you'd like more information on the organisation HIMS, you can find it on various websites. The Australian one is ozhims.org.au. In the US, it is himsprogram.com. And uh, bros across the pond in New Zealand, it is nzhims.org.nz. Any feedback regarding this podcast would be much appreciated. My email is andrew at flyingstraight.com.au. So thanks for listening to Flying Straight, Piloting a Sober Life. I look forward to sharing another story with you soon.